there's something very special about this letter written by Paul to the church in Rome. And it's this, that what we have in this letter is the most thorough explanation of the gospel in one book in all of the Bible. Neil and Christoph led us so well through chapter 6, which is such an encouraging chapter. It's positive, it's uplifting. Sin and death are no longer our master, we have a new master. We've moved from slavery to sin, to slavery to the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us enough to die for us. But if Paul had finished his letter at chapter 6, you might make the mistake of thinking that having come under the rule of the Lord Jesus, having died to sin, it would mean that we'd expect a, a very safe, a very pleasant, non-stressful journey all the way home to heaven. Well, thankfully, Paul didn't finish at chapter 6. Led by the Spirit of God, he moves on into chapter 7. And there he describes the picture of life as a child of God right up to the moment Jesus calls us home to heaven. Because what we have in chapter 7, in chapter 7, it describes the way it will be for the child of God from the moment of the new birth until we see our Savior face to face in glory. That it will be a lifelong struggle to make genuine progress in true holiness. Now please do return next Sunday evening as Christoph will deal with this aspect of the Christian life, the struggles, the frustrations, the failures. And in a very real sense, the Christian really never gets out of chapter 7 until he gets to heaven. And so looking forward to, to Christoph's instruction next week, what we're going to try and do tonight is simply to, to lay the foundation for a proper understanding of this struggle, this intense struggle every child of God is involved in day in and day out. And to make sure that you think correctly about your ongoing struggle with sin. That's, that's the goal, that's the aim that we have this evening. The Apostle Paul teaches us in chapter 6 that you Christians have died to sin and death. You're going to see tonight that you have also died to the law. You're no longer bound by the law. Take a look at the first verse. Who's he writing to? Well, as far as many commentators are concerned, that's not an easy question to answer. I'm not all that clever, so can I suggest we keep the answer simple? And in verse 1, he's writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ, to those who know the law. Some theologians think that Paul is simply referring to the Ten Commandments. Others suggest that maybe it is best to see law here in a general sense, to see it as the moral obligation that God places on all people to be perfect. Maybe Paul has the Jewish believers in mind in particular here. For the Jewish person in Paul's day, living life under the law was everything. The law was the way to God's approval. 
and eternal life. And maybe some Jews among the believers in Rome want to be under still that law and most likely want to subject Gentiles also to that law. Well, here in this passage, Paul's going to make sure that all believers, Jewish and Gentile, understand that through Christ's redemptive work, we're no longer under law, but under grace. And so as he continues his defense of the gospel of grace, he wants them and he wants us to know that we're no longer in bondage to rules, regulations, and rituals to please God based on our own self-effort. Now in Christ, we're not only dead to sin, but also dead to the law. Let's follow his argument. And I do pray that by the end of our time together, you understand what's involved in our being dead to the law and alive to the Lord Jesus. Let's begin where Paul begins. He begins with a premise. He begins with a true statement. And he uses it as the basis for his argument. Verse 1. Do you not know that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. That's the premise. No one can argue with that statement. We all know that that is true. The law's authority over a person lasts his entire lifetime. When life ceases, law ceases to hold sway. It binds a person only during his lifetime. It's very hard to prosecute someone who's in the cemetery. And this is the premise of his argument. And as an example of this premise, he chooses marriage, which is contracted between two persons until death parts them. So we have the premise, and then secondly, the illustration. And he sets us the example of marriage there in verses 2 and 3. He's making the point here that death ends all obligations and contracts. Verse 2. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. Let's think of another example. This time of someone charged with a crime. Their punishment for the crime ends naturally upon their death. When the person convicted of crime dies, he's no longer subject to prosecution or to punishment, no matter how numerous his crimes may have been. I'm thinking back to what we were taught last week. Through Christ's death and resurrection, we are dead to sin. Sin is no longer our master. We have a new master, namely the Lord Jesus. Well, when we think about our relationship to the law, Before we changed master, before we were saved, we were married to the law. And that relationship we had with the law was not a very happy one. That marriage was not a marriage of bliss. Actually, it was a relationship of the utmost misery. The law was severe in the way it handled us. It demanded of us absolute perfection, not only of deed, but also of thought and also of desire. It demanded perfect love for God and perfect love for our neighbor. In our marriage to the law, it found fault with every moment 
of every day of our lives. It's faulted our deeds and our words and our thoughts and our desires, and it threatened us with death and hell and damnation. But through what Jesus has done for us, that marriage partner, as it were, the law, is dead to us. Your marriage relationship to the law has been dissolved. We're now married to another. We're now married to the Lord Jesus. In this sense, the law is dead to us. It's not for us an option as a way of salvation. We do not seek to be right with God by obeying some form of law. Our Savior fulfilled all the demands of the law. There's nothing left to be done. He has done it all. We have died to the law by our dying in Christ so that there's now no legal covenant that the law can hold us to. Therefore, Christian, you're released from the law's demands because you died when Christ died. Christ in his dying has slain our obligation to the law by fulfilling it. Our Savior has fulfilled the righteous demands of the law on our behalf. As it says there in verse, verse 4, you died to the law through the body of Christ. So we have the premise, and then the illustration, and then thirdly, the lesson. And the lesson is this. The child of God has died to the law and is alive to the Lord Jesus. That's the lesson. And if we're going to understand this lesson tonight, then we need to grasp what the purpose of the law was. Why do we have the law? First of all, the law makes us aware of our sin. Look at verse 7. Paul writes, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Look at verse 8. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So one function of law is that we know clearly when we've broken the law. Paul uses the example of coveting. And this is something that we've got to appreciate about the law. The law can be used to show us our sin and our need of a savior. We look to the law and we see our sin against the backdrop of God's holiness. And when we know clearly what sin is, then we're able to repent of sin and to turn to God. The law makes us aware of our sin. Secondly, the law arouses our sinful passion. Look at verse 5. Paul writes, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. Verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covenant. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Verse 9. When the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. This is what was happening to Paul. When the law came to him in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
and said to him, you shall not covet. Whatever the occasion was, it wasn't the first time Paul had heard or Paul had read, you shall not covet. But it was the first time that the commandment reached into the very depth of his soul and convicted him that he was a covetous man. The sin which was already in Paul as an act of force, it lay quietly as long as it could deceive him. But when the law came, when the commandment came, sin woke up as it were, and he said, I died. The law brought true conviction of sin. And when a person is truly convicted of his sin by the law, his eyes are opened to his true spiritual condition. But take note of this. What the law does not do is to help you to obey the command. Actually, the law has a very opposite effect. When God laid down the Ten Commandments and even enacted some very clear punishments around them, a very interesting thing occurred in the hearts of God's people. They did not become better because of the law. They became worse. And what was true of the nation of Israel was also true in Paul's own heart. And it's also true in each one of us. Once God draws a boundary for us, we are immediately enticed to cross that boundary, which is no fault of God, and it's no fault of his boundary, it's the fault of our sinful hearts. I came across this example to explain what I mean. A waterfront hotel in Florida was concerned that people might try to fish from the balconies. And so they put up signs saying, no fishing from the balcony. And they had constant problems with people fishing from the balconies, with their lines, their, their sinker weights, breaking windows below, bothering people in the rooms below. And they finally solved the problem by simply taking down the signs. And no one thought the fish from the balconies again. Because of our fallen nature, because of our sinful, rebellious hearts, the law can actually work like an invitation to sin. Suppose you see a sign that says, wet paint, don't touch. I mean, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to run over just to make sure maybe it's going to be dry and we'll test this. That's what you want to do. Now, who's to blame for the transgression? Is it the command not to touch? Or is it the sinner? The, the one who disobeys the command? Well, the answer is it's the sinner. The sign just told you what you shouldn't do. So the law makes us aware of our sin and the law arouses our sinful passion. And then thirdly, the law results in us bearing fruit for death. Look at Paul says in verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. Verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. 
before he became a Christian, Paul thought he was doing pretty good, morally speaking, before God. Sin had lulled him into a state of complacency. He thought that God must have been pleased with him. But that all changed when the commandment came. When we do come to know the law, the law shows us our guilt. The law excites us to rebellion. It brings forth more sin and death because sin, when followed, leads to death, not to life. Now, the law was not designed to bring death. It directs in the way of righteousness and peace. The law was meant to promote life. But Paul didn't keep it faithfully any more than anybody else did. And the result was death. You see, the law requires perfection. The law does not say, if you could make it just up to this point, if you can be overall a, a pretty good person, then you will have God's approval. That's not what the law says. The law says, absolutely, in every regard, you must be perfect. If you hope that by the law, you're going to attain to God's favor and to God's approval. The law demands absolute perfection. Now we're coming to the good news. The good news for the child of God is that because of Christ's saving work, we are dead to the law and alive to Jesus. Through Christ, we're no longer bound to law. Tonight, we've been seeing so far the law's purpose, and now we've got those precious words in verse 6, but now. Praise God, if we're in Christ, but now we've been released from the law. And the verb released here, it means to nullify. It means to put out of commission. And here's the heart. We're at the very heart of these 12 verses now. Paul says in verse 6, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We were once bound by the law, but not now. The bondage, the control, the jurisdiction that the law once had over us is gone. Our death with the Savior has affected this termination of relationship with the law. And we now have a relationship with the very one who gave the law and perfectly fulfilled its demands. So if someone says to you, you must live by law to please God. Here Paul makes it plain that believers are dead to the law as a place of right standing before God. I love that phrase there in verse 5. You died to the law through the body of Christ. Paul's talking about the body that the eternal Son of God made for himself and that was born as a little child in Bethlehem stable. It was the body that was seized in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was spot upon. It was nailed to the cross. It's the body in which Jesus Christ took upon himself all the punishment that the law demanded justly of you and of me. 
And not only did his body satisfy the demands of the law for punishment, but his body also satisfied the demands of the justice of his father for us to have the right to become the bride of Christ. When did you die to the law? You died to the law in the death of Jesus Christ one good Friday afternoon some hundreds of years ago. Because you've been crucified with Jesus, you no longer look forward to a time when you would have to stand before the God of all eternity and be judged on the basis of your obedience to God's law. You've been set free. We once were wedded to the law. Being wedded to the law, we were under its tyranny. Do this, do this, do this. We were under its absolute dominion. We could never, ever do enough. And we fell more and more and more under its condemnation. But Christ has died. And we died with him. Such is the union between Christ and his people that there's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we need to keep learning that and remembering that. The premise, the illustration, the lesson, the child of God has died to the law and is alive to Christ. Let me finish with three very brief applications. First of all, we need to have the right understanding of the law. What do I mean? Well, having died to it, are we to disregard it? Are we simply to ignore God's law? Having described the purpose of the law, it'll be very understandable to think that the law is bad. And Paul knew that some would think that. And so he answers emphatically there in verse 7, certainly not, it is not bad. Now, if it's not bad, how do we understand the law? Well, the answer is for us there in verse 12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. You see, here's the fundamental truth. Whenever God gives a command, whenever he gives a law, it is good. To try to blame our sin on God's command is absolutely wrong. No, says Paul, the law is holy. It is blameless. God's law is holy because God himself is holy. The law is part of the revelation of God's character, of God's purposes, of God's will. The law is righteous, Paul says. It condemns the sinner. It shows him how unrighteous he is. And the law helps us to see the kind of living that is pleasing in God's sight. And the law is good. It reveals sin to us. It has a benevolent purpose in pointing towards eternal life. Now, the law is not there to save. The law can't save. The law has no power to save. But it does have the power to demonstrate to us that we, in fact, need the salvation of God because we break God's law consistently and constantly. We're not saved by setting the law to the side. We're not saved by the lowering of the standards of the law. We're saved 
by the entire, absolute, perfect satisfaction of the law by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. God's purpose for the law is holiness. We must allow the law to serve as a mirror, pointing out our sin. And the result of our interaction with the law should always be towards our obedience. We need to have the right understanding of the law. The second application is this. We need to understand that release from the bondage of the law leads us to serve the Lord in the new way of the Spirit. The purpose for which we were set free from the law is given there for us at the end of verse 6. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see, before you died to the law, you were held captive to sin. The old written code held you in chains. But now you serve a new master with a new life in the Spirit. You see, we're not dead to sin. We're not freed from sin. We're not given eternal life to live as we please, but to live to please God. And we serve him in the Spirit. We're moved by that Spirit to become more and more conformable to the image of God, that image of God that's found in the Lord Jesus. Being wed to the law, there was no fruitfulness unto God. It's our being married to Jesus, which will bring fruit to our God. The great theologian Charles Hodge, he wrote this, as far as we are concerned, redemption is in order to produce holiness. We're delivered from the law that we may be united to Christ, and we are united to Christ that we may bring forth fruit unto God. We now have an obligation to obey the law based upon our love for the Lord Jesus. Instead of trying to keep a cold, written code, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, you're now trying to please a person who's alive forevermore. You're no longer trying to live by a mere set of rules, but you're now, you give glad obedience to the person who gave those rules and kept them. And my friend, you and I will grow in godly character by growing in fruitful obedience to the commands of our Heavenly Father. And then finally, let me apply tonight's passage to someone listening in church or online at home who's not a follower yet of the Lord Jesus. I think that probably you could recite the Ten Commandments. And like everyone else, you say it is just impossible to keep those commandments perfectly. Realizing that, the law should help you to realize that trying to keep the law is not enough. It, it can't be done. The continual breaking of the commandments ought to reveal to you that you're a sinner. You're in need of someone to rescue you. You're in need of a savior. And I wonder tonight, are you conscious of the sin that exists in your life? Have you become aware that you've consistently broken God's law?
You need to understand that. For if you don't understand your sinfulness, you'll never understand your need of salvation. And that's why the law is important. That's why the law is an essential element of the gospel. The law can't change the human heart. Only the gospel can. But I want you to know this. The law doesn't reveal our sin in order to have us wallow in our sinfulness. No. Remember, the law has a purpose. And it's that we may become more and more earnest in seeking the forgiveness of our sin. The law's purpose is to bring you, my friend, to the point of saying, there's nothing in me. There's no forgiveness of sin that I can procure for myself. There's no righteousness that I can earn that that will please God. I've got to look outside of myself if I'm going to be forgiven of my sin. I've got to seek it in Jesus. My friend, cry out to him tonight. Cry out to Jesus tonight because he's ready to forgive you. He's ready to give you eternal life. And in a few moments, those of us who have sought the forgiveness of our sins and the Savior, we're going to be sitting at this table. We're going to remember our Lord's sacrifice for us on the cross to provide our salvation. It's going to be an opportunity for us to give thanks to him for his great love for us, to give thanks to him that we're dead to the law as far as its demands, as far as its condemnation is concerned. It's going to be an opportunity for us to renew our love for the Savior, to commit afresh to do his will. And then afterwards, we're going to rise from the table to live for the Lord Jesus, constantly endeavoring to become more and more conformable to the image of our Savior. Knowing as Christoph will remind us next week, knowing that there is no perfection for us here on earth. There is no perfection for us here on earth. But there is a constant battle with sin and with the devil. But in heaven, in heaven, we're going to be transformed entirely, perfectly, into the image of Jesus and we're going to shine with the glory of Christ in every word, in every thought, in every action forever and forever. What a truth. What a truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the teaching of this passage that helps us both to see our sin and to understand the extraordinary role that your law plays in bringing us to faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for our Savior who has brought us into a new redeemed relationship to the law, who has worked in our hearts in marvelous, gracious ways and who promises he'll continue to do so. 
Thank you that Jesus Christ is our deliverer, that no matter what our sin, our Lord Jesus has more grace than there can ever be sin in our hearts. How we thank you, Father, for him. And pray that in this week and as in every week, that we may rest in him, find him all sufficient. Father, you've given your own son for us. You've given him to the death of the cross for us. Undeserving as we are, you've given all this to us freely in your grace and at this table. Lord, grant us the assurance that we are forgiven and grant to us the power to walk in holiness. Father, continue your saving work within us until the day when our salvation is absolutely complete and perfected and we enter into glory and we see you as you are and are made to be like you forever and ever. We'll look forward to these moments around the table of our Lord and Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen.